Hey to all you fish enthusiasts out there. Whether you're an avid angler or just curious about fish, we'd like to welcome you to Fish of the Week, your audio almanac of all the fish. It's Monday, July 11th, 2022, and this year we're excited to take you on a week-by-week tour of fish across the country with guests from all walks of life. I'm Katrina Liebeck with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service in Alaska. And I'm Guy Eero, and today we're talking about the Cisco Corgonus Arcadia. And I'm very pleased to welcome our guests. We've got Kevin McDonald. Kevin's a fisheries biologist at our Alpena Fish and Wildlife Conservation Office in Michigan. And for folks not familiar with that neck of the woods, that's on the Lake Huron side. And Lake Huron is one of the five interconnected Great Lakes. So welcome, Kevin. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So what I always find out amazing is just how much the fish community has changed over the years in the Great Lakes. There's been a lot of additions. You've got salmon now, lamprey, alewives, carp. There's been a lot of losses too. And the fish we're learning about on this episode used to be very abundant, correct? And it could be again. So we're excited to learn kind of some history, what folks are doing um, to shape its future. And that said, just kind of wanted to start with the basics. If you were to have this fish in your hands, what would what does it look like? What would you see? Sure, yeah, it's a uh, cisco are known kind of as a small silvery fish a lot of times, and as members of the salmonid family, uh, they have a really prominent adipose fin. So that'd be like maybe one of the first things that would jump out at you. But uh, alas, it is not a salmon. Uh, it is a cisco. It's in the Corgonus uh, family. So fun fact: Corgonus actually means angled pupil in Latin. So that's another characteristic of the fish: is the their pupil is kind of angled looking. And it'd be a fish that would probably be, you know, maybe 12 to 15 inches long in Lake Huron, you know, weigh between, you know, a half and one and a half pounds or so. And you probably caught it pretty deep, uh, unless it's in the fall when they're spawning, then they come up shallow, but they are a obligate pelagic fish. So they're hanging out in the dark depths of the lake uh, for most of the year, eating zooplankton and other, whatever other bugs, you know, they can get their mouth around. And uh, yeah, additionally, you know, they, they have a big brother or a big cousin, I should say, uh, in the Great Lakes, which is the Lake Whitefish. Uh, and folks sometimes, you know, catch a, a small Lake Whitefish and think they caught the world's biggest Cisco. Uh, unfortunately, that's not the case. And oh, tell, bummer. Yeah, to tell them <laughs> apart, uh, one of the easy ways to do is look at their upper lip. Uh, Lake Whitefish will have like a curled uh, upper jaw, whereas... Cisco will have their lower jaw will be actually be longer. Um, they, have a, they have an underbite uh, will be longer than their uh, upper jaw. And, you know, you, when you look at them, it kind of makes sense. It kind of looks like they're built for sipping, you know, a little zooplankton or whatever in the water column, whereas a whitefish kind of looks like something that's been mashing its, you know, mouth against the ground, eating, eating whatever's in the, you know, the bentos, so, um, which they do. These are called lake herring too, is that correct? Or are there any other names people should be aware of that, um, Yeah. Cisco and Lake Herring are, are the, the two biggest um, that I think people will encounter. I think the lake, the name Lake Herring, you know, it makes a lot of sense when you think about a herring and, you know, a big, small forage fish that schools pelagically, you know, uh, it's pretty yeah. fitting. But not, but they're not a white fish. But they're not a white fish. Yeah. 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 So yeah. the names are always, yeah, they always confuse me. We had Randy Brown on last year talking about whitefish up in Alaska. And it's always kind of confused me, this distinction between whitefish and ciscos, because you're talking there, both of those are within Corrigonus. The mm-hmm. cisco that I've seen out in like Bear Lake in Utah, the Bonneville cisco, you got the Bear Lake whitefish and the Bonneville cisco, and those are both in prosopium. And so I'm just always yeah. trying to figure out what makes something a cisco versus a whitefish. And maybe it's just a common naming kind of thing. I don't know. I, I think it's a the result of just some common names. You know, when you think about, you know, mountain whitefish too, you know, um, I, I think 
people probably filleted them out and said that flesh looks white and ah. I'm going to call this a white fish, <laughs> you know, based on the location or what have you. Um, yeah, I, I think it's probably just a lack of creativity when it comes to naming. Potentially. Yeah. <laughs> I'd like to know a little bit more about the historical kind of commercial harvest for this species, just in, in general, I guess, in the Great Lakes and also more specifically kind of near where you are in Saginaw Bay. Sure. Um, yeah. So Cisco were actually the prior to, you know, the invasion of um, non-native species were the most abundant pelagic fish in the Great Lakes period. So they were everywhere and then they kind of weren't starting in about the turn of the century up into like the 40s and 50s. There's a quote from one of the observations from like 1919 or something that they were found in every port and bay throughout Lake Huron, you know, and including, you know, the North Channel and Georgian Bay and the main basin. They were, they were really kind of everywhere. And as such, you know, you would imagine a fish that's that ubiquitous and also known for, you know, having some pretty delicious meat on it. Commercial fishery really developed rather quickly in the Great Lakes. And yeah, that was kind of, you know, the start of, you know, the decline of Cisco was, you know, this, this industrialized fishery that, that popped up that was really targeting them with the market that, you know, also popped up along with this fishery and the demand uh, that it drove. So they were overexploited for a real long time. And then the other components are the non-natives uh, that came in, particularly alewife and smelt. Those are also, you know, two other pelagic fish. Uh, and so they, they kind of, you know, put a lot of competitive pressure on Cisco for the same resources, same zooplankton uh, that they Cisco favor. And then, the you know, the last component is, you know, uh, habitat uh, degradation. These fish require uh, like pretty pristine cold water as well as shallow rocky habitat to spawn over. So can imagine just some of the, the forestry practices and land use practices, I should say, uh, at the turn of the century, maybe weren't too sustainable. We're thinking uh, of the fish. Yeah. 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 Exactly. And so you take all the, those things together and they pretty much winked out. Uh, they almost disappeared completely throughout a lot of the Great Lakes. What's the extent of the range of this species beyond just those Laurentian Great Lakes and like Lake Nipigon and stuff like that? Yeah. They go all the way up to like Hudson Bay. Uh, it can be found in inland lakes kind of throughout you know, the, the Midwest uh, and, you know, up into, you know, Manitoba and Northern Ontario and Quebec, you know, all the way up there. I think it's really interesting because Guy mentioned Randy Brown and we talked to him about the formation of a fishery up here on the Yukon River for the Bering Cisco. And that was actually the result of the fish in the Great Lakes, like the Cisco's declining and kind of a need for a new source of a fish like that. So it's it's interesting how that ripple effect can have such a wide kind of reaching geographical impact. That was a really cool fact when I, I listened to that episode as well that I, I hadn't realized, you know, the Great Lakes are reaching outside of the Great Lakes and into marine habitats, you know, uh, so pretty cool. You you mentioned there that one of the issues was invasive species, specifically alewives, and I forget exactly what it was, but I read somewhere that they're sort of having a ripple effect, to use that same term that you just used, within the ecosystem is going up towards salmon and lake trout and stuff like that, and I was curious if you could expand on that a little. Yeah, so alewife, when they first arrived, they were really, really great for uh, salmon, like to eat them, you know, another introduced species. Uh, lake trout like to eat them. The, the, the unfortunate thing about alewife is they're not well suited for life in the Great Lakes. And so they're, they are um, prone to big die-offs. In fact, just a, a few weeks ago, Michigan DNR had to put out a notice about a die-off that was happening near the Sleeping Bear sand dunes in Lake Michigan because people were not 
excited about the the smell uh, at this pristine, you know, uh, National Lakeshore uh, Park. So yeah, they're, they're prone to die-offs and boom-bust dynamics. Same with uh, rainbow smelt. Uh, rainbow smelt can be everywhere and then they can disappear. And so that kind of really turbulent and highly variable prey base, you know, when the going's good, it's great for, you know, uh, salmon and lake trout. But when it's bad, you know, they're left with nothing. And uh, as, a, as a result, um, they're not quite as nimble as those populations, as you imagine, as a, a top tier predator. So when, when the bottom falls out, they don't recover near as quickly. And one of the reasons that we would like to get Cisco back in the, you know, in the game and being more uh, abundant is to provide that stable prey base for our, our predators in the, in the lake. What are some of the tools that you guys are using to start bringing the fish back? Or what are some of the strategies that are happening in Lake Huron and some of the other Great Lakes, maybe? Sure. Yeah. Um, so, you know, there's a focus on, you know, bringing back um, spawning reefs and, you know, habitat rehabilitation. But the really big one in Lake Huron currently has been our, we started in 2016, uh, Cisco Restoration Program for the main basin of Lake Huron. It's actually, uh, I was told, the largest Corrigonid restoration project in the Western Hemisphere, oh. uh, which is kind of a fun fact. Um, I don't know how many there are, uh, but ours is the biggest. <laughs> <There's one. laughs> yeah. um, and uh, so, the, yeah, in that project, we the goal was there are remnant populations of Cisco, particularly in the North Channel of Lake Huron, uh, Georgian Bay, and then also along kind of the, the north part of uh, Northern Lake Huron. Uh, but none in the main basin. And so the idea with this project was, let's grab some of those fish from Northern Lake Huron, let's bring them into uh, a hatchery setting, develop brood stock that can you know, provide a stable source of fish into the future. And then let's start planting those fish from this brood stock back into the main basin. So we started that effort in 2016, was the first year that we went up and grabbed uh, fish from the Lachino Islands um, and Drummond Island in Northern Lake Huron. And grabbed gametes from those fish, brought them back into the hatchery. Um, our stellar hatchery staff, you know, has been working and figuring out the husbandry that, you know, goes into, you know, raising these fish, which was uh, new at the time. And 2017 was the first year then that fish were stocked back into the main basin of Lake Huron. And uh, that took place in Saginaw Bay. Uh, we decided, you know, that would be uh, working with the Great Lakes Fishery Commission, that that would be an optimal site for the rehabilitation project because it used to serve as such a big nursery for a lot of fish. Uh, as you imagine, you know, it's a shallow bay, highly productive. And in fact, Saginaw Bay and Lake Huron accounted for like more than 90% of Cisco landings in the lake. But the idea is that the fish won't only exist in Saginaw Bay, that they will, you know, kind of rear in Saginaw Bay and then move into the, the main basin. So the main basin is their target, but uh, Saginaw Bay is kind of the planting site. Okay. And how do you know, as things are moving forward, if you're being successful? I mean, are you marking these fish or are there some methods to kind of tell them apart from wild individuals? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, I'm part of a, a, my office is part of a big monitoring uh, component of this project and, you know, trying to find these fish. And so we, we utilize a lot of different surveys ranging from, you know, gillnets, you know, trying to, to find uh, the hatchery fish after they've been stocked and hopefully when they've grown to a, you know, maturity. We also have been doing a lot of early life history surveys, so looking for larval fish, because the idea is that we'll keep stocking these fish annually, and they'll eventually start spawning in the wild. And if we can document that they are successfully spawning in the wild, you know, that, that's a great step forward. But to, to your question about, you know, whether we know if it's a wild or a hatchery fish, in the hatchery, we are using oxytetracycline, which is uh, it's an antibiotic, actually. And uh, 
when you feed this fish, this uh, the OTCs, as we call it, um, in the hatchery settings, it actually leaves a mark on their hard structure, so their otoliths and their bones, that binds to the, the calcium, I believe, in, the, in those structures. And one of the unique properties of this chemical is that if you absorb OTC and then you take that hard structure out of the fish, so unfortunately you have to sacrifice the fish, and then you let it fluoresce under a UV light, or I should say you bake it kind of under this light, it'll actually fluoresce. And so evaluating these hard structures, we can actually tell if a fish is a wild fish or a hatchery fish because the mark would be absent in the wild fish and present in the hatchery fish. And to further confuse things, we are uh, doing multiple releases of fish. So fish are getting stocked in the spring and the fall. And so spring fish receive one OTC uh, treatment and our fall fish that get stocked later in the year receive two treatments. So we're actually able to tell whether a fish has a single mark or a double mark on their vertebrae is, is the hard structure that we're using, whether what season they were released. And the idea there is to identify the best stocking strategy uh, moving forward. Yeah. Of recent, we started investigating alternative life history strategies of these fish in terms of, uh, or I should say, spawning strategies. Uh, and so through some eDNA work, we had a preliminary like a pilot study. We were able to detect them in rivers during the spawning period. And so that's something that hasn't really been documented before, but it, it could be a really important, you know, when you think of climate change and, you know, the, the lack of cold water and maybe the lack of productive waters, spawning in a river might be a really valuable alternative spawning strategy uh, moving forward. That's cool. And eDNA is a really neat, so that's environmental DNA. And that's where you actually go out and just get a sample of the water, right? Without actually having to collect the fish itself. So it's a really neat tool that's being used now to, to do stuff like that. Yeah, we, we detected both Cisco and whitefish kind of in, in the Thunder Bay River and uh, potentially in the Sheboygan River. And we're waiting to get those results kind of finalized. But yeah, it could be a really, you know, interesting, you know, management tool moving forward, too, when we think about habitat restoration. Yep. You guys got a lot of barriers out there, too, right? And the, all the issues with sea lamprey barriers and yeah, kind of complicated river systems. Yeah. And if they're not being successful in the lake, you know, and, but we can figure out a way to get them successful in the river, you know, that opens another doorway to, you know, creating a sustainable population of cool. Cisco and whitefish. Yeah. So if I was a fisherman and I caught a fish and I knew it was a species, is there something I could do to help you guys gather more information? Yes, ab absolutely. If, if we, were, we were asking the public if they encounter a Cisco uh, in Saginaw Bay or really anywhere in kind of Southern Lake Huron. So kind of think Thunder Bay South, if they catch a Cisco, we're really interested in looking for those marks on those fish to help us evaluate how well our uh, project is going. And so we're asking uh, anglers or anyone that encounters Cisco is if they can take off about the last quarter of the fish. So kind of that narrow part of the fish we uh, call the peduncle. You, you can lop that off, wrap it in tinfoil uh, and freeze it, and then actually drop it off at a, a Michigan DNR office. Um, so the one in Bay City is a great option or up here in Alpena. They'll get it to us and we'll we'll evaluate it. And, you know, we, we'll even call you back and let you know, uh, you know, what, what we found. And people in the public have started encountering these. They're just now kind of getting big enough where people might start seeing them, you know, getting incidental catches, you know, as they're fishing for perch or, or what have you. So, yeah. And the, and the bulk of the fillet is up ahead of that kind of ladder part with the peduncle area, yeah, so nope. it's not really wasting too much meat either. Nope, not at all. And even if it's a little fish that you wouldn't plan on filleting, we'll, we, you know, we would ask that you you hold on to it uh, and send it our way rather than keeping it cool. or putting it back, I should say. <laughs>
Talking about those two release times, are those from the same spawning unit, I guess? So you would spawn them and then you'd release young ones in the spring and then save some of them and release some older in the fall. Is that how that's working? Yeah, exactly. Yep, exactly right. So in the spring, uh, releasing fish that are approximately like 50 to 60 millimeters. And then so about a half million of them get stocked. And then we're holding on to the other half million, growing them out to about 90 to 100 millimeters and then releasing those in the fall. And we are also stocking fish from shore and offshore. So we're using um, our stocking vessel, the Spencer F. Baird, to move fish offshore and stock them um, about seven kilometers offshore. So so within each one of those seasonalities, half the fish go get stocked onshore and half them get stocked offshore. All right. So the hatchery that they're at, which hatchery is that? Is that something people could actually go see these fish when they're really small like that before they get stocked? Or I know some of them you can visit. Yeah, I, I, they're they're housed at the Jordan River National Fish Hatchery. I'm uncertain as to uh, <laughs> what, what what the status of tours are and everything with the way COVID's going. But uh, you know, assuming that uh, tours were going on, yeah, you'd be able to go go check out these fish beforehand. You're saying that they're spawning in the fall. You think about fish a lot of times. You know, it, it, these lakes are icing over, and you think about fish, the larval having to come out and have food to eat eventually. So. Are these eggs, if they're spawning in the fall, are these eggs just overwintering under the ice for several months before they hatch? Yeah, that's exactly right. Okay. Uh, that's actually a pretty critical, what we're discovering is a pretty critical component of their ability to successfully hatch. Really? Okay. There's lots of evidence uh, with whitefish too. They have the same kind of timeline uh, in their spawning and hatching. But years that have really bad ice, or well, I should say don't have a lot of ice, you know, a, a short ice duration over winter tend to have poor year classes the following spring. And the exact reason why is, you know, the, the mechanism there is not, not fully fleshed out. It's either, you know, the mechanics of waves, you know, crashing on, you know, eggs that are, you know, in the interstitial spaces of rocks just pulverizes them. It could be, you know, just a temperature effect. There's an idea that it could also be due to UV light. So as you know, with, you know, the introduction of uh, invasive mussels, the water column in, in Lake Huron and a lot of the Great Lakes have, has cleared, uh, allowing UV light to penetrate deeper. And so that actually can fry an egg or or a larvae that, that just hatch. So, But if they have that ice cover, it gives them a chance to maybe to just be protected and weather the storm. And it allows also maybe, you know, offshore uh, waters to warm up a little bit. And, you know, you kind of get that match mismatch hypothesis where they need to hatch right when the zooplankton is your know, rotifers and everything is popping off so they can just, you know, get to eating as soon as that yolk sac's absorbed. Wow, that's really interesting. I kind of wanted to know about all the other Cisco's as well. I mean, it's kind of a fascinating group of fish. So I know Guy and I have that same interest in learning a little bit more, but I know I know there's some species that are still around like this one. Are, are there some that have been lost and kind of what's the whole status of all of them, I guess? Yeah, there, there's a lot that have been lost, uh, unfortunately. And, you know, a lot of them, the, the Cisco complex of fish, you know, used to involve, I think, up to seven different ecomorphs or subspecies. There's a lot of taxonomic uncertainty when it comes to Cisco's. They're very plastic fish. So uh, you have fish that are maybe in the same species that look very different. For instance, in the Lachino Islands, we know that fish that spawn in the Lachino Islands are very uniquely genetically distinct than a fish that 20 miles away, maybe 10 miles away in uh, Drummond Island is just completely different. 
that kind of plasticity and genetic diversity lend itself to a lot of different ecomorphs is, is kind of the, the word that gets thrown around now of Cisco's. And then there's also bloaters, which are kind of a deep water Cisco, if you will. Kai was another one that uh, that winked out. But yeah, there was this incredible diversity of Cisco's that uh, unfortunately through overfishing and everything has kind of gotten whittled down to just kind of what we're what we have now, which is um, what known as like a shorthead Cisco yeah. technically in Northern Lake Huron. And I think that stability you have when you have that plasticity and that diversity. I mean, if we're talking about this being a forage fish, that's really important. We see that in Alaska, too, with salmon. And it seems like when you pick away at that diversity, it can really have some kind of bigger effects on the fish that eat them and beyond. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and and they all kind of occupied, you know, their own little niches. And and so, you know, you would, you would expect uh, when maybe the deep water bloaters aren't doing well, maybe the pelagic ciscos um, are, are doing a little bit better. And so, yeah, it provides that nice stable kind of prey base when there is a little more diversity and kind of helps our native lake trout, especially, you know, uh, it buffers them from kind of the boom and bust of, you know, the life that is a, a, a forage fish. I am kind of curious what these niches are or were for these different species. Because, you know, you think about, I was texting a friend of mine who really knows a lot about her Cisco's before coming on this show. And she was talking about, you know, oh yeah, they're like the Darwin's finches of the Great Lakes. But when you think of Darwin's finches, you're thinking, okay, they're set up on these different islands. They're distinct from one another. Uh, But you got all these fish that are evolving kind of in sympatry a little bit, you know, maybe they're in different parts of the water column, but they're all sort of in the same spot. So what are the different niches that these guys are sort of exploiting that allow them to be different species? So, yeah, a lot of it is depth based, uh, just where they where they like to forage in the water column and what their thermal tolerances were or preferences, I should say. And then also depth of spawning. Uh, So like in the Lachino Islands, we, we have lots of fish that, like I mentioned, you know, they'll come up in six feet of water, you know, uh, real, real shallow. Whereas there's other populations of Cisco, they'll spawn at 30 or 40 feet in depth. Okay. So, okay. That has a follow-up question then. Uh, you think about, you know, a lot of these smaller lakes that you get, especially down south, you get a lot of lake turnover going on and, and mixing of water temperature. To Imagine that these fish are going to evolve, I would think that you'd have to have pretty consistent temperatures if that's going to be the driving factor. So is the are the temperatures in the lake pretty stable year-round or pretty predictable at least that these fish can rely on that? Yeah, generally, um, you know, they're they're at temperatures below the thermocline or they like to hang out maybe right at the thermocline. Okay. Um, so yeah, they're, they're, they're pretty stable in, in terms of like their thermal tolerances. I've heard Cisco is, you know, called the canary of temperatures or, or water quality, you know, so um, they're really susceptible to like when water gets warm really fast or any of those issues. So like I mentioned, you know, that, that applies to spawning, applies to, you know, when they hatch in the spring, they're really sensitive to temperature. Huh. It kind of drives a lot of their life history. So could anglers use that kind of information if they wanted to go out and target them or target like, say, they want to catch musky that might be following these guys into the shallows or something? Could they use that temperature information to sort of figure that out and help them? Yeah, yeah. Um and, and there are folks, there is a small kind of recreational fishery, I know, uh, in the Lachino Islands and uh, Drummond Island area, folks that are targeting uh, these fish in the, in the fall. So outside of the fall, they're generally really deep uh, and might be pretty difficult to find for, you know, your average recreational angler. But in the fall, they do come up. I will say they tend to spawn in like some of the worst weather. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, <laughs> and uh, yeah, it, it's almost always, you know, pretty gnarly weather where... Um, 
when, when they do end up spawning. So you got to have maybe some thick skin to target spawning Cisco, but, uh, you know, they start staging at, you know, maybe not super shallow water, but, you know, at something that's, that's a little more reasonable that to fish, you know, from a, a recreational boat prior to November was typically when they spawn. So in October, you know, you could probably start targeting them. So you need your good cold weather gear. What kind of, do you know, what kind of baits or lures these guys are using to fish for? Yeah. I, I haven't done it myself. Uh, unfortunately it's, it's on the, on the to-do list, but, uh, I, I believe, you know, you kind of fish them like a panfish, uh, just maybe okay. deeper. So yeah. wax worms, wigglers, like, you know, oh, that'd be fun. cause they eat bugs just like, you know, a perch or, a, you know, a panfish. So I have heard people can target them with a fly rod during the hex hatch. Oh, wow. Go get them guy. <laughs> I, I don't know exactly where that, ha- that might be inland, maybe inland lakes, uh, where, where they do exist. Um, Sweet. but I've, I, I haven't come across that myself, but I, I, I've read Read about that's it. cool. <laughs> so, from a value standpoint, I mean, you've got a good tasting fish. You've got a fish that's an important prey source for other fish. Maybe a prey buffer for other species that are important, like perch or I don't know. Um, yeah, what uh, what are some other reasons folks should value these fish? I mean, I know you mentioned they're just kind of like a silvery little fish, maybe kind of nondescript compared to some of the bigger, more charismatic like salmon or something. But what are what are a couple main reasons people should value them? Yeah, um, I think you know a, a good component. Um, you know, why we should value them is, you know, they, like I mentioned, they were the most p- abundant pelagic fish in, in the Great Lakes. And really uh, it's having that stability will, um, A, they're, they're, they're fun to eat and catch, you know, for yourself. Uh, and they're going to provide, you know, uh, a great fishery for the predators that a lot of the public like to go out and, and, and recreationally angle for. So lake trout and salmon. So, if, you know, if we have healthy forage fish, you know, based, that's going to work its way up into the predators and, you know, provide a, a fantastic you know, fishery. And, you know, ideally it would be great to reestablish a commercial fishery, you know, if you get them to the point where they could sustain, you know, that kind of harvest once again, uh, with our baby steps first, I, I should plug, you know, we, we are seeing returns. So last year was the first year that we were actually able to implement a spawning survey, uh, for returning adults. So hatchery stocked fish and, you know, we were able to get out just briefly last year. Uh, the weather did not cooperate, stayed warm way too long. As I mentioned, you know, they're highly sensitive to temperature, but uh, we were able to capture fish, you know, that were coming back to spawn, you know, fully mature males and females. So we keep finding them here and there. And so we're hoping that it's going to ramp up and we're going to start seeing Cisco kind of, kind of everywhere. Yeah, that's awesome. I just have one more question and that's, um, have you eaten these fish before? And if so, were they good? And how'd you prepare them? This is so sad. I have not had a chance to eat uh, a Cisco uh, quite yet. I'm not new to Michigan, but uh, I, I just started this position about a year and a half ago. So I haven't had a chance to get my hands on uh, a fish to, to catch on my own. So, but on the bucket list for sure, I, I, I'm told they're, you know, just like a nice white flesh, pretty similar to, to white fish, but uh, uh, yeah, I, looking forward to having some uh, at some point. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us. It was super interesting and we enjoyed having you. I appreciate talking. Yeah, it was great to talk Cisco. And I hope you get a catch and eat one soon. That's cool. Oh, I hope so too. Fingers crossed. Well, we hope everyone gets out there and enjoys all the fish. Uh, get to know the Cisco's. There's a lot of really neat ones kind of around the country and we'll see you guys next week. Thanks for listening to Fish of the Week. My name is Katrina Liebick and my co-host is Guy Eero. Our production partner for the series is Citizen Racecar, produced and story edited by Charlotte Moore Lambert, production management by Gabriella Montaquin. 
Post-production by Garrett Tiedemann. Fish of the Week is a production of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, Alaska Region Office of External Affairs. We honor, thank, and celebrate the whole community, individual tribes, states, our sister agencies, fish enthusiasts, scientists, and others who have elevated our understanding and love as people and professionals of all the fish. 